0: welcome everyone to hey hey agave today on the show we have james schrader jay is the author of understanding Mescal. Gabrielle and I were really, really excited that he decided to come on the podcast and talk to us about his new book. Um, As I told Jay, we have been waiting for someone to write a book like this. Uh, It's a comprehensive look into the world of agave distillates, focusing on every aspect of mezcal production. So he deals with agave reproduction, roasting, the role of yeast in fermentation. Uh, There's a section on distillation that's just truly stupendous. He really breaks down the science for us. He also attempts to explain a bit about the DO, um, the denomination of origin, and also goes into some detail about um, what the current market pricing, uh, how it affects us as consumers and how it affects us globally and how, most importantly, it affects the producers. If you have already read the book, this conversation will give you a much more in-depth look at the topics that he wrote about and hearing it directly from Jay is, is just wonderful. Uh, if you haven't read the book, then I, I would encourage you to listen to this conversation as well. I I don't think it's going to ruin anything for you, but it will, hopefully encourage you to, to go buy it and, and to read it for yourself. Uh, it's, you know, it's a small book. It's, you can probably read it in about three, three and a half hours. Um, and I really, I, I, I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, I think it's a great primer for anybody who's just getting into agave distillates in mezcal and wants to learn more, but I also think it's a really crucial read for people that are, um, you know, maybe more veterans of the field. Um, And I think that, uh, yeah, I think basically everybody, everybody should go read this if you haven't already. I also wanted to mention to our New York listeners, there is an event coming up. Our friends at the Mezcal Collaborative are hosting a conversation called Does Big Mezcal Equal Bad? Looking Beyond Oaxaca. It's going to be moderated by Tess Rose Lampert. And the guests are Kai Hakkinen of Backbar, Arik Torin of Fidencio, and Danny Mena of Leyenda Mezcal. This is taking place on Monday, June 10th at Rosa Mexicano, and you can find tickets at Eventbrite. I also wanted to mention that Jay is a partner and the beverage director at Quixote and the adjoining bar, Toto Santos, in Chicago. So if you guys are in Chicago or visiting, uh, go, go eat there, drink there, visit him. Their agave distillates menu is pretty superb, um, so please do that. That is it for now. Um, I want to thank everybody so much for listening. Thank you for sending us your comments. Please continue to. You can DM us on Instagram or you can email us at ola at tuyo.nyc. We really, truly do appreciate hearing from you. And without further ado, this is our conversation with Jay Schrader. Welcome, everybody. We Hi. are here today with Jay Schrader. How's it going? Good. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing excellent.
0: And Gabrielle, as hi. always, hi. Hi. Wonderful to be here. Um, we are here specifically to talk about your new book, Jay. Yes, we are. Understanding Mezcal. Yeah. Um, first of all, thank you so much for writing this book.
1: Well, it was my pleasure.
0: <laughs> it was a pleasure to read. And um, and I mean that with all sincerity. Um, I've read a lot of books um, that have been written about Mescal, about traveling to Mexico, about the DO, about the CRM and um, I feel like your book is the first one that I've read that is extremely approachable, it's extremely digestible I feel like you meet people on whatever level that they're at, um, you know, from beginners that really don't know much but are interested, uh, to people that might know a little bit more. Um, you really you really go for it, and for that, I, I commend you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I guess, you know, I'd like to start out by just talking a little bit about your background, right? Okay. Um, you are originally from Indiana?
1: That's right. That's my curse. <laughs> I'm a born, native-born Hoosier. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But you've been in Chicago for quite some time.
1: Uh, yeah, over a decade now. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so why don't we just go down um, a couple of the projects that you've been involved in sure. thus far? I mean, I've got my notes here, and it reads pretty amazingly to me. I mean, I know that you um, started out at um, Mercadito, and then you worked for Rick Bayless for a while, right? And there was the Frontera and the Topolobampo um and Choco.
1: All, all package all that? deal. Is that all at They're the same time? They're all very adjacent to one another uh, on Clark Street. Okay. Uh, the original uh, property was uh, Frontier Grill that then moved next door to itself and then became uh, that space became The Shoko came years later. But yeah, it's all one connected entity. They're all Bayless's restaurants.
0: And your role in that was always beverage director and manager, spirits guide <laughs> exactly yeah and, all of the above bartender too i was one okay. of the first
1: uh, bar managers that that i literally made them give me bar shifts i was like pay me less salary a year but let me let me make it back like i want i want to bartend and yeah. i want to lead from the front and i want to be part of the team so awesome. uh it was a very old school program the way that, that it structured but it was so much fun to to bartend with those guys it, it, legends there julio's been bartender there for 30 over 30 years now wow
2: so, you also yeah. get a lot of information that you wouldn't get as just a director oh like exactly. the, the interaction with the people people that might come that are very knowledgeable and you know test the waters to see how large level you are like it, it can be something really fun i can see it's pretty awesome
1: sure yeah i was glad to do it you yeah. know
2: and then from there,
0: you, mo- you moved on um, to a uh, partner in Mezcaleria Las Flores? Yeah, yeah, I created
1: that thing from the ground up. It was a, a little thing called Flower Shop Bar before uh, I took over. And I had a crazy idea, and I spent about four months like, worrying whether I should do it or not and opened Chicago's first dedicated Mezcal Bar.
0: So that had, must have been in your mind for some time before you did that. So, so what, like, how did you come to Mezcal?
1: Well, the idea for the bar wasn't in my mind before. <laughs> oh, really? It literally okay. the opportunity presented and I, it just like some sort of intuition came in and it was like, I think, I think this might be the right time to do something like this. And I feel like I might be qualified enough to try to take it on and all that. Um, coming to Mezcal, I mean, that was just literally starting to work at Mercadito, working with Mexican spirits, being around the cuisine um, and really committing myself to learn about tequila just because I had so much of it there. Uh, and then we had a very small selection of mezcal at the time. Uh, it was basically uh, what was available in the market, and knowing enough to know I didn't know anything about it, and being kind of scared. Like I think most people are well, when they first. Well, it's pretty intimidating. It. Extremely.
2: You also, you also live in Chicago. I do. And there's a huge Mexican community. That's what, right. Was that part of like coming to terms, like learning about mezcal and tequila, that you have interaction with the with the society there?
1: I think it really threads back in through the cuisine elements. I think Chicago is so Mexican cuisine amenable because of the community's there. I've never lived in nor worked in like the near South side, like Pilsen Bridgeport. Um, but at the same time, I think that our connection with and our amenability to Mexican is. food uh, is is plugged in there. And it has granted us uh, Chavez El Original, which is a 24-hour Mexican restaurant, open 365 days a year. And I love it. by the way, it's incredible. So Vamanos. That is, hear, th- hear that, everybody? Chavez that El Original. Yeah. Oh, it's, it, is, it saves my life on a weekly basis.
2: You also have Moreno's.
1: We do have Moreno's. I've never been to Moreno's because if I go, I will spend too much money.
2: Mm. I see you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I probably shouldn't be there year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so let's fast forward to present day, yeah. right? And let's talk a little bit about Quixote and Todos Santos. Yeah. Tell us about those spots. Uh,
1: So incredible. Quixote uh, our flagship. It's a restaurant upstairs all in one building. Uh, Quixote is a really unique cuisine. Uh, we do... Um, really deeply Mexican rooted dishes that draw very heavily on Midwestern and then like broadly international like techniques and ideas. So interesting. We have over our so far two year run uh, evolved into kind of having our own specific cuisine. What will be your rock
2: star from that cuisine?
1: Our rock star? like
2: This plate is just, this is it.
1: I made it. I had someone threaten my existence over the avocado salad last night that if we ever removed it from the menu, uh, that, that, that something bad might happen to me. What makes and, her special? Uh, it special? It just, it's so, it's so damn simple uh, and it's so straightforward and it's got this super like funky uh, grated cheese on top of it and uh, shaped Brussels sprouts and it's just a so light and fresh and it's just crushable. Um, but yeah, our, our, that was one of our flagship dishes originally and it's never going anywhere cause I might get hurt if it, if it did. The people have spoken. Um, yeah, right? No, like mm-hmm. uh, taking threats to my life. Um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, we've evolved into having this really sophisticated cuisine that's still very, very much Mexican, but at the same time has all these other really interesting and international influences. Like if this restaurant were in Mexico City, it would make a god awful lot of sense because it's pulling from a lot of directions in a very eclectic and international way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Toto Santos, Mezcal Bar in the Basement, we have a god awful lot of fun um
0: how many expressions do you
2: guys carry
1: uh about a buck buck 30 to buck 50 somewhere in there oh boy ranges around uh Uh, we
2: and the ones that you cannot say that they're there the
1: uh, the ones (laughs) that i will most definitely not on record say that are most definitely there uh none none zero zero percent we have no things that we shouldn't have anywhere in our in our building
2: ever so don't ask them
1: or underneath the left station on the bar um yeah, it, it's, uh, it's such a cool program because it is a really perfect marriage for me of the two things that I like about a bar or a bar experience. It is, it is number two, it is super knowledgeable and there are people there that are willing to teach you if you want to learn. Number one, we are all really, really nice and we love having fun. So I think your number one goal in going out to a bar, even if it's like a serious tasting room, should be to have a really fun experience there, a very spontaneous experience there. But At the same time, our knowledge base is incredible. So on a Friday night, three deep, four deep, you ask about agave spirits. We'll randomly grab four different bottles that we're really excited about and spiel you in 45 real seconds on what these are, this, 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 and like impart some knowledge on you in this chaotic environment. And nothing in the world makes me happier than that.
0: Bringing mezcal to the masses. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a dream come true. And also like, you know, without any kind of like – Prejudgment or pretentiousness, I think that's really crucial too. Cause you know, people are coming at all different levels for all different reasons. So um that sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, if you were there, you are there for the right reasons. Yeah. You know? Brilliant. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and how long have these places been around?
1: Uh just over two years now. Mm-hmm. So we did like a soft free concept. Uh totals didn't really have an identity. Uh that was kind of my doing. Uh, and putting the branding around it, changing the cocktail program up kind of changing the vibe of what we do, making it a little bit less of a serious tasting room and a little bit more of a, a, a fun spot to be that also has that element. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have uh, just two years and, and a number a small number of months. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: And so talk to me a little bit about the cocktail program because cocktails are not something that we talk about traditionally on this show, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on it since that's sort of what you do.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's part of what you do. It's a pathway in, you mm-hmm. know, and... One thing that's really near and dear to me is having a positive economic impact on Mexico, specifically rural Mexico, right? Like I want to be able to, by doing what I do, uh, be creating jobs and and getting money into people's hands for doing what they do for a living, right? So moving cocktails, which is the abundance of what we do, Mm -hmm. is a really good way of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And
0: how do you choose the spirits that you're going to include in the cocktails, the mezcal, I guess, specifically? Like how do you go about that?
1: Uh, just based on like flavor matching and what, what vibes well with the other ingredients in the cocktail, oh. we always okay. have several different things we're working with. Mm-hmm. So we've got at least a couple different espadines or something related to that. And then beyond that, I want to work with as many other things as I can. Mm-hmm. So we got a really cool cubriata that we got in the well right now. Um, I'm working on seeing if I can get a couple other cool things to, to play around with. Uh, but yeah, like. Having a diversity of options mm-hmm. gives me not only a, a diversity of, of purchasing and, and business side of stuff, it also gives me a bunch of stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. If I'm working with the Ricea, I then get to talk about yeah. that category. And
0: Ricea is such a wonderful spirit to to mix with, for sure. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. it's wonderfully complementary. that the,
2: the Ricea, at least the two or three times that we have talked about it, um, is a very nice entry-level mezcal. It's not as potent sometimes it's a little like the ones that so, were a little sweeter talking, a sometimes little sweeter. yeah like, uh, we had this amazing interview with uh, Rio from Estancia Estancia yeah. and yeah. that particular Ricillo was so subtle mm-hmm. you know like you know I never thought about this but this, this is this a very nice entry-level agave spirit the spirit like opened that way yeah and like oh i never thought about it so i can see how can it, it can be used in- yeah and
0: it's cool now because more and more rice and more and more sotal is being offered in market so yeah. there's a lot of options sure which is really exciting
1: we move an awful lot of sotal too we got do two you Sotol cocktails on the menu right yeah. now and yeah we uh-huh. move a lot of it
0: cool yeah. that's awesome and you also do sort of like i don't know if they're organized or impromptu but like kind of classes like you'll give like Right at uh, Todos Santos. Exactly.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's it's uh we do them about once a month mm-hmm. and we get it on the books. Uh, it's a ticketed event. It's general public facing, uh, though we do get a good handful of industry folks who who just sure. Uh,
0: I mean, it's a great opportunity to come hang out and drink some really good and stuff. learn.
1: If you're gonna be serving, you're yeah. better than well. You know, yeah.
0: it's about educating your bartenders, right, and having them be as enthusiastic as they can be about about the stuff.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. you also make more money they're honest if you, if you know what you're talking about and you're serving somebody that is is looking to get a little bit of a class and instead of one mezcal he's gonna buy three because you're actually gonna be able to provide him with information that's also business
1: it's all yeah. part of uh, the yeah. process yeah
2: the book the book Jay, the yeah.
1: book yeah. I messed um, around and wrote a book I never thought that that would be the case but I did el libro <laughs>
0: um tell me like the inception let's talk a little bit about how you decided that this was something that you wanted to do and now or whenever you started was the right time to
1: do it sure it, it is and, and I wish I could say it was part of this big insane sort of calculated thing um but like much like uh the inception of Les Flores like it was literally I felt like I looked up at one point and I was like well I, like okay I don't understand this stuff contrary to the name of the book uh but like I felt like I had a pretty good wrangle on some of the core concepts and like looking around, you said before this, I read it. Like I was waiting for someone to write this. Me too. Yeah. Dead yeah. serious. Me too. I was just like, I I want something really foundational to come out that yep. that hits these more yeah. like rangly aspects of this. You that know? when
0: somebody asks you about mezcal or how can I find out more about it, yeah, this is the book that you Symphony. give them. This is where you send them. This is the perfect accompaniment to a wonderful like gift, you know, with yeah. a bottle of mezcal,
2: the book, whatever. You know, a beautiful I mean, pair of copitas made out of porcelain. This, but this is furry.
0: this is that wonderful <laughs> book that will bring people to it in a very accessible way. Yeah. So that's what you were like the same, right? Like I want something like this. <laughs> exactly. I
1: wanted the same to exist. And I, the conversation started and the details behind it and how it all sized up is not super important, but like just having someone else plant the idea in my head that I might write a book immediately makes you ask a question. Well, if I did that, what would I do? Wow. And the idea was real intuitive. Like it came yeah. to me really quick and I was like, well, this is, I guess this is how I'd approach it. Mm-hmm. And then within three days time I had started writing it before any of the process to turn this into an actual thing ever started. So
2: it's very interesting because I had a hard I, I have a hard time reading period I have some sort of dyslexia. Yeah. Um and I think I, I told you that on on the night. Yeah, you did. Um but hearing you talk and having conversation before the, in starting the interview and hearing your rhythm of voice and how you convey your your words I can see it on the book. Is is you, you wrote you wrote it kind of like the way you speak.
1: Oh, exactly. There's, there's this
2: thing like I'm 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 reading and remembering and I'm hearing your voice and I know, like, this makes this makes sense now 100 <laughs> percent. anybody who knows me who's read it mm-hmm. has
1: had the unfortunate displeasure <laughs> of reading it in my literal voice in their head I, which i don't really wish on anybody i have but to say wait is i'm reading it right now in my in, brain and to going future. really
2: fast right now like that
1: <laughs> that's <laughs> pretty awesome <laughs> get uh, james earl jones to to do the the voiceover <laughs> right. on that one yeah
2: um we can try <laughs> so
0: something that i find really i found really interesting is that um the way that you structured it, yeah. I think, is really great. And and it's great because you don't just dive into like, this is what an agave is, everybody. Like, let's go through it. You start really specifically kind of giving an overview of the complexity of what the Mezcal community, world, production, what Mexico is like. Um, You don't go into detail and you say very specifically, we're going to get into it, into this chat, you know, so we're waiting for it. But you make a point to sort of, you know, give your readers an overview of where all of this is coming from. You focus on the term Mezcal, you know, and like... Why why are we calling it mezcal, right? Yeah. Versus agave distillate, agave spirit, which I think you know, on this podcast, if people have been listening, we sort of switch all those terms around. Back and we forward. use them yeah. pretty loosely. Sometimes we get into specifics about the well, this is the do, and so this is a mezcal, or this expression that we're tasting is a distillate, you know. Yeah. They
2: also they also came with the time and on that the, the timing in the life of mezcal that we were talking. If we're talking early. 1900s versus now, like, you know, Pino de Mezcal and all those. uh Right. More more more, directing to like just the spirit itself, less of the name. Right. And now we're getting to know Bacanora, Mezcal, Raisilla, uh, Sotol, like very specific because the denomination of origin most likely in some of them.
0: I think that, you know, that sort of introduction to the reader is is really crucial because it kind of gets your brain going. It gets you starting to think about Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here, but like it's very you you don't go too fast, you know too quickly, too soon, which is awesome. but um, but you do start with agaves, which sure. makes sense, <laughs> and let's talk a little bit about that chapter. Um I really loved this I have my notes here. I really. I loved this phrase, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but we okay. can kind of like weave in and out. Um, up until the last few hundred years, humans viewed agave a bit more like fresh water and a bit like less like corn. Right. So talk a little bit about that because I think that's like a crucial point.
1: It is. And it, it sometimes one of the things in trying to keep the book concise, I felt like I might rush through it and make the the impact of what I'm trying to say maybe a little lost without sitting there and like hammering it in. The opposite of that being Sarah Bowen's book where like she right. lays the, the yeah. evidence out very meticulously and keeps circling back. And my sociology, yeah. liberal arts heart yeah. loves that so very much. Uh, but yeah, with that um, – it, it, it trying to underscore this, it was a resource. It was a thing that we have because it's here, not because I have gone through and cultivated this and, and tried to create this thing. If there's an abundance of something around you, you don't really need to worry about it that much. Once you start depleting something down, then it becomes something that you have to cultivate, manage, organize, have some sort of system. At. So if there was enough agave around for folks to cook and turn into food or to create pulque with, you didn't probably really spend much time thinking about where you were going to get it from. You know, it wasn't then agriculture. It's just a resource.
0: Right. Exactly. And now, you know, fast forward a couple hundred years or even a hundred years, you know, and and it's it, the industry is booming. Right. And yeah. Thanks,
2: tequila. You say thanks, tequila, but it just popped into my mind and probably you, you mentioned a little bit on your book, but pulque and eneque and, and the other ways that this this plant has been used. Like I've been I've been researching a little bit and the the names of this pulque haciendas that they're like just thousands of agaves. And then you see the eneque haciendas in, in Yucatán that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of agave plants just Cultivated to be used as a resource it's very interesting because if you see the cornfields and you say, well, this is for food, but this, this this plant was used for plenty of other things, not as much as liquor. I think the more previous years, the, the heaviest juice that it had was many other things other than tequila mezcal until the tequila became the hyper uh, liquor that it became in the years after.
1: That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Until yeah. until the tequila era, the the uh Hanequin, like fiber market probably had the biggest huge. single impact mm-hmm. on Mexico. the Yeah, sure.
0: It's so it's interesting because um, because agaves have been around for so long, they've adapted and they're extremely resourceful in how they reproduce, right? And I think um, a joy to read was just you going into some detail um, about, you know, a monocot, uh, monocarpic, only flowering once, the seed, the bulbil, the offset, iwello. Like, let's talk a little bit about the ways that the agave has adapted to regenerate itself, you know, to, um, to pass on, you know, its genes and to also... <laughs> be very promiscuous.
1: Can be very promiscuous. I oh, t- we'd like that word. <laughs> it's, it's
0: we try bad. to say it at least once every podcast.
1: Okay. It's just weaving that. I like that you have that as a theme. That's nice. Uh, yeah, I feel like. Uh, so we hired on a, a science editor to to go through this book and fact this, check. to fact check all, and he's a dual PhD uh, biochemist and botanist. Oof, this dude awesome. lit me up. Like, he grilled me on every single term. It's like. Technically, the rosette is not a structure. I'm like, okay, well, this is – we're like going back and forth on all this stuff, and I'm so glad about it because I learned a ton through that. That was incredible. You don't get that sort of person's attention that easily, and especially not, you know, when we're doing this kind of run-and-gun status, right? You're also
2: creating vocabulary. Like, you don't have it, so – in order to write a book that is the way that you want to describe something, you need new words.
1: Sure, so that's yeah. that's pretty awesome. And a lot of it was like, I started calling monocots. He was like, okay, well, the most common term is eudicot now. Like, that's the most correct. You need to go with that. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'll do that. Um, Let it be known, everybody, eudicot. Eudicot's only from now on. Um, yeah, okay. but like working working specifically in, in that realm, I learned a bunch about uh, the plants and how they grow. And a lot of it was... I, in some ways, was kind of over personifying these plants. Okay. So you see an adaptation that a plant has. Agave store their starch in a way that animals can't eat, right? They store it in a term of fructose. Which Yeah. Uh, y- Yvonne Ribeiro lit me up. It's not a starch, it's a fructose Sorry, guys. I didn't want to get that wrong. <laughs> um, I went with starch, anyways, because it's a little easier to understand. Um, but yeah, like y- y- I personified that initially in writing this as hey, this is a defense mechanism the plant has. Well, it turns out it's probably not. It's probably just the way that it stores starch because it's a really convenient way to store starch. Evolution would indicate that convenience is probably a little more important than than defense. That's a second order sort of thing. Uh, so that was really cool. Um, reproduction. I think the most slept on part of agave reproduction is bulbo offsets. No yeah. one really ever talks yeah. about that. And if you,
0: you guys look it up, I, there's actually an image on our website of it. It looks so funky.
1: Cool. Yeah, cool. I'm actually uh, growing an Espadine bulb offset uh, in my apartment, along with 14 other species uh, <laughs> that are all going to get real big. And uh, yeah, it, it even because of how it starts off on the, the quixote, um, for those of you playing along at home, bulb offset, if the flowers get damaged or not pollinated on the, the quixote, a the bulb offset will oftentimes take its place. And it's the plant trying to uh, asexually reproduce out of there. So no also, promiscuity in that case.
2: It's one of those plants that you will not let any energy go to waste. Like that, it looks like, we were we were talking to Tessa a couple of weeks ago, and it was, you know, there's you you uproot a plant that usually don't do anything, right? It's always just, uh, you know, it's going to have a coyote and seeds, and that's the only way you reproduce. But then you uproot this plant that is like... <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna attack bulbous everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> like it's they're so adaptable. Go, like, go, it's, go, yeah, go, yeah. go. Is this like is our chance. Oh yeah, God. it's pretty
1: amazing. It, in in it, at risk of personifying even more, the plants do freak out really easy uh, if they, they're at risk of getting hurt or killed. And I've even seen uh, one situation in which a quixote of, I think it was a marmorata, was, was cut off, it was Capone, right? Mm-hmm. And the plant out of like desperation somehow created a quixote out of its own roots and shot a quixote up out of the ground next to it. Holy and they cut that off and then bulbil offsets were growing off of this like knob of the thing. It was just like oh. Frankenstein, like how can I survive?
0: And so the bulbil and the iuelo are genetic copies, is that correct? close. Bones. Yeah, they're clones. Yeah, okay. they're clones, and okay. the
1: one is the ones off the quixote, the bulb offsets, the ones off the roots, just a rhizome. Uh, yeah, off the base, just an offset.
0: Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah, um, I know that there is a topic very close to Gabrielle's heart that we need to get into a little bit. <laughs> <I can imagine. laughs> um, it, and it comes in the chapter where you kind of get into um, the science of making mezcal, right? Um, it's yeast. Yeah. And I have in my notes, yeast exclamation point. Okay. Like I do jazz hands right now. (laughs) So Gabrielle, yeah, yeah, basically Gabrielle, Gabrielle, (laughs) Gabrielle. So yeast is something that we talk about a lot. We don't know a lot about it, but we do understand that it's integral, crucial, (laughs) Um, you know, spontaneous fermentation, all of that. So please enlighten us. Let's talk about the yeast and the aspect of fermentation.
1: Well, first off on you guys level, uh, what if I told you that, uh, my really good friend Chava, uh, had sent me recently a scholarly article that analyzes the different types of yeast and bacteria that are found in different agave ferments throughout all of Mexico. Oh my God. Send be it, interested send in it it that? over. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll hook that up. <laughs> Please um, it, it, I think that's the m- number one most slept on uh thing about the mezcal process right so we're, we're sleeping on Bulbo offsets in terms of reproduction in terms of uh, the process of making mezcal the thing that most people never say strongly enough to consumers especially is that this stuff starts out life as a sour beer
2: it's just natural ease.
1: it's all natural it's, it's a <laughs> but feast. nothing
2: there's no more than that that's all you get is natural ease from the area okay thank you Don't- right yeah. yeah but like
1: but like what, then what does that do and right. and the the factoid on that of this is the only spirit category in the world that the ferment is generally allowed to go on longer than is needed to produce alcohol It keeps on fermenting because the palanquero decides to allow it to keep on fermenting to build flavor. And this is
0: where the sort of authorship really comes in, right? This is – right. Okay. So it has to do with region. It has to do with elevation. It has to do with, you know, what the ecology of the area looks like.
2: cultures. But it also –
0: these are decisions that are being made by a human being too, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's huge.
0: Yeah. And so um, I know you mentioned in the book that, like, it could be – the fermentation period could be anywhere between, like, 5 and – 30, like almost a month?
1: I've seen 30 mm-hmm. um, in Santa Catarina Minas at a couple of producers there. Uh, I want to say at some point I've heard of somebody going longer than that. Worthy of note that generally when you go that long, it seems to be that producers allow the, um, the fibers of the agave to float to the top of the fermenter yes. and to form a cap up. Kind of like
2: fungus on the
1: top? Kind of like, yeah. Like it, it basically, it just seals it off, makes it a totally anaerobic environment. And at a certain point, You're dropping off drastically in terms of how active that ferment is because your sugar is almost entirely gone. You're just changing molecules into other, you know, more complex components into other complex components. Uh, So it becomes much less active. You're not like, you know, 90 degrees outside, raging hot, pushing it down all the time, like, you know, pushing the gas pedal on it, making it go faster, faster, and then letting it go for 30 days. That would be pretty uncommon.
2: When the folks that we have interviewed that came back from any of the Durango trips that had happened recently, uh, one of the fascinating parts of, of talking with them was that the bats for fermentation were maybe no more, at least on the pictures, it doesn't look more than two feet tall. There's like these tiny little, like almost like a kid size uh, pools that is very interesting. Like on the floor, um, some of them are lined with either wood or sometimes like it looks like even rock. Uh, that's it. So the, the, the shallowness versus like the giant wooden uh, barrels that they use. Not They're not barrel, but the barrel look like tubs. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like night and day
1: in the process. It's pretty interesting. It's wild. I had never seen anything like that. And it's like a really, 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 really long igloo cooler, yeah. like in terms of proportions. And also, importantly, I, I say that on purpose because it's an insulator around it. So it gets real cold at night. I don't fully understand this, but it gets real cold at night. It gets pretty darn warm during the day. Mm-hmm. And their fermentation turns over real quick. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I can think of, and I need to speak to a thermodynamicist. If there's anyone out there who's a thermodynamicist listening to this, please just slide into my DMs. Um, I I want to try to see if like maybe it's just so good at keeping heat in because of the thinness of those yeah. that it oh, causes that point. ferment to be able to, to keep enough heat that it turns over that fast. Three days is real quick anywhere, let alone place that it gets cold.
2: Right, see, yeah, had also a very interesting uh, time frame when we talked to Rio. I, don't, I can't remember the specifics, but we can check later. Yeah, he uh, had a very specific like time, it was like-, it was like It's the heat, yeah. you, know, you they're in the coast. Yeah. But they're not on the coast, if yeah. they're not um, by the coast, yes, hot. it's you like hot, so hot with hot and hot, and it's just gonna go well, for super quick and like highly volatile. Sure.
0: So here's a question, yeah. I've asked this a few times um, to different people that have come on. <laughs> Do they ever keep a little bit of the ferment in the barrel or in the, the fermentation tank so that when they have the new batch come in, there's something to like kind of get it going? Is that something that you ever see, or is that not happen? It's just like a new batch, get, let all the, the natural yeast, spontaneous fermentation happen, blah, blah, blah.
1: Well, I mean, mezcal, never say never, right? Right. Um, not that I've ever seen. Okay. Um, I have seen, even recently, uh, there's at least a couple producers in Michoacan that get pulque in bulk, And use pulque as a fermentation starter, which is really cool because in the scholarly article that I'm going to send you guys, uh, it (laughs) specifically calls out uh, different yeast and bacteria that are uh, in pulque ferments. And so you're starting off with maybe a bit of a different microbiological spectrum. uh, And also you're dealing with stuff that was probably more related to the plant because you roast the agave, you're sterilizing it. So if you're taking the yeast and stuff off of a, a live extant agave, uh, you're going to get a totally different sure. window into that. But
0: something's got to happen, right? Like, okay, these things are being roasted in the ground. There's earth. There's like all kinds of debris going on. And then there's being crushed by whatever, tahona by hand, you know, in a chipper. There's still stuff it's collecting all the time, right? Like
2: yeast. But I guess I guess the, the physical part of it, like the crushing and the, the moving when they're fermenting, is also to create some kind of, one, it breaks. I think it breaks the sugar, right? When when the fiber, the the agave fiber that is very strong, you literally have to smash it in order to break it down and be able to release uh, the mineral part, like the, the 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 active part of it, the fiber that is inside that you're gonna end up fermenting at some point. Uh, and then when they're airing and moving the the liquid itself, just to add air to the mix, so it can not well there's aerobic and iron anaerobic but the aerobic part of it makes it faster it seems like so mm-hmm.
0: and it's also you did mention in the book that um in the fer- for fermentation it's either just the agave that's it and the natural juices from it being crushed and whatever but now you're saying sometimes they add a little bit polke to like get it going right Some or they can yeah. add water sometimes too right if if need
2: be
1: well, the, they'll generally add water. Very interestingly, on the opposite side of that, uh, I've been to a producer in Jalisco who does agave iniquidens, and they don't add any water at any point in the process. Mm-hmm. There's enough water in the iniquidens that they harvest mm-hmm. that they literally just mash it from. And the
0: iniquidens is a species, a type of agave. Species of agave. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just to be um, clear,
2: it has a very, very chunky leaf that we have seen on photos. It does. Yeah. I, and, I and like kind of like pointy and and like wavy they're really really beautiful
1: they look beautiful i'm really sad that i don't have one and i've kind of banned myself from getting any more plants
2: we should touch
0: on the fact that the not only is the genus important to understand the agave type but there's also all of these local names or common names all throughout mexico it can get really really confusing really fast because you know somebody in durango might have a common name that is the same as somebody in oaxaca for a completely different species So it's all about trying to do your best to figure out what is what am I drinking or what kind of agave is this? And I mean, I know in your book, in the book also, um, Jay, you you outlined really beautifully um, a a good deal of the species. I don't know if you if you were able to include all of them that are used for making mezcal. Probably not. Oh dear God, no. But it's a really good range, you guys. And so um, when you pick up the book and you look at it, uh, yeah, you can check it out. And and you've dedicated basically two pages. Per, per species. And there's a nice little map of Oaxaca with the region, or not Oaxaca, I'm sorry, of Mexico with the region that the agave is most endemic to. And that's really cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about common
1: names, confusions. These palanqueros are going to keep me employed <laughs> is what it is. They're just making a space for people like me to have a job. Um, it's really annoying. and. At the same time, like I'll break out some like ridiculous thing to guess at the bar and just be like, I can't forget anything. It's a curse. Like it, it it's this stuff just kind of sticks with us. And and I'm so fortunate because my staff at, at Todos is is so dedicated. Uh, shout outs to the squad, Las Aves Nocturnas. That's that's our that's our squad name. That's awesome. The creatures of the night. <laughs> um,
2: not, not any creatures. Las aves.
1: Las aves. The birds. The birds. The birds of the night. The avians of the night. Um yeah, we, uh, we'll play games with each other and just be like, name four names for agave marmorata. And that's like a real tough one. And you're like, okay, well, there's, there's, there's uh, Tepestate. There's, uh, okay, uh, Pichomel, Pichomet. Okay, uh, that's a half step. I won't give you that one. Like you, you go through, right. pisora is a name for marmorata. I have this insane list that I will share with you guys that is... Ooh. All these cataloged off regional names that's constantly up, they're updated to Google Doc, and it has three or four dozen names for Angustifolia. Yeah,
2: uh, if you don't mind, we will put that link directly on the website. So th- that sounds amazing to have
1: for sure it's it's yeah. definitely good for stump the chump with your bartender your friendly local neighborhood bartender because it's it's stuff that like i will never have the time or bandwidth to memorize but
0: but that's a great resource to have yeah. if you have you know something that you're confused about or right even
1: if you're
2: looking online it's, it's, it's sometimes like there's there's a few websites that we we check for photos and and refer and like do reference i naturalist i don't know if you have seen okay that. uh so there's there's you know there's hundreds of people in this website that is almost like a Facebook for plants and fauna. It's pretty amazing. Yeah,
0: it's like an open source sharing. It's really, th- really Everybody's sharing images and they're like, where do you think this is from? I was in this region. What so do you think this you is? you can
2: start with just a single plant and put in all the different names and you will get different hits. Okay. So it's th- having that list, I think I, I will go a few hours deep. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> looking. yeah it's pretty amazing.
0: So the common name it different from the genus name. Um, it's important to, to. I mean, none of us are going to know everything, but it's kind of cool to know. Um, you know what what is the genus name for espadine? The angustifolia. You know, like sure. what? Um, and so in the book you included that as well.
2: Um, and it can get confusing, but you but know, don't you still have angustifolia. Uh, from Oaxacansis, I think it is, right?
1: It's Americana, oh, the Americana, 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 yeah. Americana, American. and it, I didn't even touch on that in a book because yeah. it is, it is a very wrangly one. Those are very closely related. They, they're subspecies of the same species, all of that. You know, I think that's this, where it
2: gets really super complicated.
1: It gets real tough, but I'll tell yeah. you, this is a really good reminder, uh, for us and for everyone listening at home that this is such a wrangly subject and no matter what the ultimate authority on whatever the thing is, is the person who's making it. Right. And you know, we talk about the term mezcal. We talk about yeah. like what you call it, you know, what type of agave it is, what the genus and species is of it. I and mean, like, you regional. It's yeah. so, it's, it's micro, it's extra micro regional. Like yes. the person who makes it, I call this one so because it looks kind of gray. The other one looks green. I mean, and you, they are the authority on it. And it makes us, that's why I wrote the book from a generalist perspective. Because yes, yes, I, yes. I listed the top three names, greatest hits, top forty. Like I listed, I listed the most basic names for any of these things, just because I didn't want people's eyes to glaze over and be like, "I'm never going to know this." stuff. Yeah,
0: you yeah, know? and that's why I, it is super approachable and it's very informative. I mean, it can get a little overwhelming when you're th- going through those pages and you're like, "Oh my god, there's another one. Oh boy!" And you look at and they, oh, you guys also there's these great illustrations. Who was the illustrator that did that uh, one for you?
1: Polly, Polly Jimenez.
0: Okay, really, really cool. Um, and they're 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 simple, but they give enough information. Where you can see, oh, that one looks a little fatter with wider leaves or a little pointy or whatever. And um, they're great. Yeah, all throughout the book, there are these little illustrations, depending on what chapter you're reading, um, that kind of depict whatever it is that you're talking about, which is really cool. Specifically, um, my second favorite um part of the book was the distillation part because um, I learned a lot. Like I'm, I'm so the furthest thing from an expert. And distillation was something that like I knew about, but like I didn't know anything like chemistry wise about it. And man, it just opened up my eyes. It was really amazing. And plus, when you talk about the different types of stills and there, those little drawings, like you know, the
2: drawing with the fats. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah, breaking down I, the, the I atom and the molecule. Yeah, so,
2: And that was a mind-blowing thing. Like, it makes total fucking sense. Yeah. Like, it, it, that's it. Yeah, so
0: let's just start out with a, a, a tiny little quote that you have um, that you said, and it's, the still is an editing machine.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. It, m- largely, yeah. yeah and, beautiful. like, all this is at maximum 90%, right? Like, there's a little bit of stuff that I go into that can happen inside the still, but for, for the most part, you're literally just cutting stuff out uh, and deciding what stays and what goes.
2: Most of these machines are a little bit of a Frankenstein on each place. Like, they're not, there's not a standard. This is the way, like, there's a broad idea of how they do it, but they tweak their machines as any other good magician does. No, for sure. (laughs) And
1: it's cool because in in Oaxaca, uh, the um, uh, different still types down there, they have kind of like one unit of regular copper pot still. And then you see a lot of people taking that thing. Probably all of them come from a very small set of manufacturers yeah. uh, and they set them up the same way. But regionally, you'll see people starting to like tweak the, the machinery yeah. itself to try to make it different. And then you get up in the North, your God in Chihuahua. It's like, <laughs> hey guys, we need to make a stills Go to the houseware store. Like, let's get that stainless yeah. steel cooking pot. Yeah. And you see these really scrappy and very intuitive ways to repurpose things. It's beautiful. Yeah. And it, it, I use this word very pointedly in the book. It's technology. Yeah, like you see someone taking slats of wood and making it into kind of like a de facto barrel and mm-hmm. turning that barrel into the head of a still. Mm-hmm. That is technology. That is intuition. That is uh, determination, self determination, uh, and it's it's people making a thing to make what they need. And I've seen some of them. Some of the stuff, like uh, broadly in Mexico, uh, in in mezcal production, other than in industrial settings, it, you'll take a still that's made out of copper and you'll bury the bottom of it in earth. And what you're doing with that is insulating around the outside, you are drastically reducing the amount of firewood that you need to, in order to fire that still. I have never seen anyone anywhere in the world do anything like that. I've seen almost every spirit produced in its country of origin, and no one has done anything that blindingly simple, yet that brilliant, that's huge.
0: I, I love Mexico for that reason, specifically. Forget about Mezcal, with every industry, with every single simple, like you you look at it and it's like these what's it, life hacks. Or just like a stupid simple thing of years and years ago when we were first together and I was having to put something up on the wall and I needed a washer. And I was like, I don't have a washer. i got to go to the hardware store. And Gabriel was like, didn't we just have a beer? And he just grabs a bottle cap. He sticks a hole in it. And he's like, there's your washer. But you see
2: those many times. <laughs> not is the, in is, my life, is the, though. It's the most used uh, hardware in Mexico. In Mexico. <laughs> a beer,
1: it, it is It is now standard policy at Todos Santos. We, we've taken inspiration from Guillermo, who's from San Luis. And... Uh, it is standard policy that at no point are you to open a beer the way you're supposed to. And it's just <laughs> come like, you have to come, like there are times where someone will hand me a wine That's key funny. and I will turn it on its side and no, use it as no. a lever on Like I want to get good as the best one is opening a beer with another beer oh, and yeah. you grab the oh, two yeah. and you open the one with it. Without
2: and spraying your face. Yeah, no, it, 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 it's <laughs> incredible.
1: Important. And it's all connected yeah. to that all same ingenuity.
0: So to get back on track, reel it back in. Sorry. <laughs> fats and acids distillation i'm just i'm going to read a tiny little quote um from the book that i found very um very poignant this is an incredibly important important point of distinction for mezcal among its spirit category contemporaries with mezcal production we have a ton of sugar and oil and acid in the mix drastically more than is found when creating any other spirit yep talk to us about that because it's really fascinating
1: the whole Okay, so first off, the whole distillation chapter came to me like a bolt of lightning. Like, I got struck by this thing and scrambled to write this down. I woke up the next day and wrote it all front to back in, like, an hour and a half. And it's because all these these wrangly concepts are difficult to put together, and I've always had them bounce around in my head. And for me, it's part of my larger educational philosophy of, like, if I can't explain it to me, I can't explain it to you. Ed- learning and teaching are the same thing. Um and yeah, that's such a differentiation point for for agave spirits as a category, and for a lot of that, you can thank the fibers, uh, by including the fibers throughout right. the process, by having that that bagasso in contact with the liquid for longer in that longer fermentation. But it's you, one
2: of the few spirits that does it. Tequila doesn't.
1: Tequila. Um, I, oh God, I don't want to say never. Um, no, never. They do. There are a, at least a couple folks it. that still keep. But the industrial intact.
2: wise, it doesn't work. No yeah. one.
1: Um, so the, the fibers have all these like weird things going on in them. Uh, they have fats. Uh, the acid comes mostly from, from the lengthy fermentation. Uh, some of the sugar that, that gets pulled off uh, later in the game and some of the like waxier elements that mezcal sometimes have. Uh, you can thank most of that on the, the fibers. Um, and by having those involved for so long and then putting them in the still, um, you've created an abundance of them. And as I talk about with, the, with it being an odds game, like those things don't boil they are not gonna just evaporate off, but every once in a while, one little molecule here and there is gonna pop off and go through. And when it does, it then ends up having a huge impact on the spirit.
2: You mentioned something very interesting in the book. Uh, I I have this visual memory, I don't remember the words, but it was something in between that the different temperatures will allow the different boiling points to happen and therefore there was this dance of keeping certain temperatures in the steel to get the right liquid that you want to distill out of it. Yeah. Like the right alcohol. And I was like, I I never read it before and I think it's probably something that is in a few different places but I never encountered it and I was like, that makes so much sense. Like the puntas, the colas and besides that, the, the, the quality of the alcohol that you're able to distill without the ethanol or more ethanol. Like that whole dance was... I think it was very eye-opening.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you, you look at, let's call it a center point, evaporation. You have glass of water on the table, that thing is not boiling, you leave it there for a day and it's gonna drop an inch, right? Um, so evaporation being kind of our center point in this whole madness. Um, when you boil something, it's basically just turbo evaporation. You're just making that thing happen so much faster. You boil that same glass of water, it'll empty out in an hour and a half or an hour or something, right? Um, so yeah, like, by walking up to over the boiling point of ethanol, but below the boiling point of water, it's just gonna be better for you to be able to separate those two things apart. Uh, and that's kind of the very sweet science that people have intuitively figured out yep. how to do with this whole thing.
0: And another big difference, let's talk about the Puntas and the Colas that come out, right, let's, um, let's go into that, because you break down pretty nicely about how it's different from any other spirit
1: this is, this is the worst thing to try to understand. It's just so hard. I think you
2: did a pretty
1: good job. Yeah, Yeah. But like the reason that I was able to do an okay job is because I, I went to great length with it. Right. Like you walk through it little by little, by little, by little, um, it's like i think
0: you even give a disclaimer like listen if this isn't for you you're you have permission to skip over this part <laughs> yeah hit,
1: hit skip intro on Netflix. You know, yeah. that
2: puts you in a very guilty place like oh i skipped this listen, you, you, there's you an def- element you're have of shame it. in it <laughs> yeah. i'm trying to shame you low-key i want you to feel really bad well. about it but no it's
1: okay go ahead and skip it don't read it it's not important you don't mm-hmm. need to know about this. Mm-hmm. so when it's you
2: see, see like when you're gonna have this interview Face by phase. You're going to say that you didn't read it? Hmm? That's yeah, it's cool. Not. Just don't even tell me. You know? So,
0: so <laughs> ca- let's kind of talk about it. how you do in the book with whiskey and mezcal. Okay. What's the first stuff that comes out in a distillation process for whiskey?
1: I'll try to explain this uh, in Lou Bank status because Lou Bank, uh, homie of homies, I, I love him uh, so very much is allergic to learning anything Like his brain is just shut down. It's just, it won't, it just bounces off. Boom, boom, boom. And uh, it's so cool. Cause he, he picked up the book and he read through it and he's able to directly quote some of the stuff that's in there. He's like, stuff sticks together and some <laughs> stuff sticks together more than other stuff. And like, it's cool because it, that was my goal. It's like, I am going to lay this out. And, uh, yeah, you're basically, um, anytime you have methanol in a distillation, uh, it's gonna come out at some point, right? And methanol and ethanol have pretty similar boiling points. In most spirits, like whiskey or anything made from grain or grapes or name it, uh, there's not that much methanol. And methanol has a lower boiling point than ethanol. Because of that, it's gonna come off the still first. So, first things first, you're making your moonshine. You don't wanna drink the first stuff that comes off the still. And if you don't throw it away, you might hurt somebody, right?
2: A fascinating point is they use wood. So, there's no like real thermometers happening through this thing. The temperature is based on experiencing much, months,
0: months Look, of time. It's really at amazing, it. right? They can yeah. tell just from sight and heat, and probably sound of what it, what it sounds like. In bed. length of
1: time as yeah. it boils down, you need less and less firewood to keep the same temperature. Like, yeah, intuition on a hundred, off the charts, right? Um, but yeah, basically because in agave spirits uh, there is so much plant fiber in fermentations, plant material makes more methanol be created. I don't know the exact mechanisms behind this, but you got more plant stuff, you're going to get more methanol in the fermenter. And the The foam part, certain things, certain things like to stick to each other uh, in different proportions is the really wrangly part of it, right? So methanol and ethanol, as the amount of methanol increases chemically, it sticks to ethanol more and more. So it gets heavier. They act like a unit. They stick together like so a team. So instead of it
0: being super light or a low bowl- boiling temperature, right, they're going to be heavier?
1: They get constituently heavier. They yeah. stick together like a team, like a squad, like the Aves uh, from Todos. And Nocturnas. <laughs> <the> Nocturnas. <laughs> uh, and in doing so, uh, they become constituently heavier and boil at a higher temperature. And in agave spirits, you get things coming off the uh, you get things coming off the still, uh, you get methanol, excuse me, coming off the still at the very tail end mm-hmm. versus up front. So there are totally people Totally different. It's totally so opposite. Just, it's bizarre. Just for
2: people that might not know it, the difference, ethanol and methanol, you were talking on something very specific that one of them gets you blind. Yeah. Good one, <laughs> the other one bad doesn't. one. That's, yeah. that's <laughs> the difference between methanol and methanol.
1: Good one, bad one. Uh, ethanol, beverage, alcohol gets you drunk, makes you have a, a good time. Uh, Otherwise, uh, methanol it's harmful to the body. You're gonna have, and now this is like another totally different issue in the mezcal world. You have methanol in some capacity in all distilled spirits, and thankfully, the cure to methanol is ethanol. If you accidentally consumed uh, medical grade or industrial grade methanol and you call poison control, they are literally gonna tell you to rip shots of vodka. Or like drink wine or something. Or
2: mezcal because it's going to be faster. Or mezcal because it's going to be be
1: much more fun. No more Uh, vodka anymore. So it counteracts. It it doesn't counteract, but it causes your body. The problem with methanol is the fact that your body doesn't react to it. Okay. It's like lactose intolerance in some very unrelated way, right? Lactose intolerance. If you can't process lactose, your body doesn't know how to react to it. And so it kind of freaks out. With methanol, you consume that. Your body does not produce the thing that breaks down alcohol. And the thing that breaks down methanol is also the thing that breaks down ethanol. So if you drink ethanol, uh, then your body starts to produce the chemicals, alcohol dehydrogenase. It'll start to break that methanol down very uh, quickly and organically. That's why it's safe to have some level of methanol in beverage alcohol.
0: Right. And and so when you get involved with the ins and outs of the um, DO and that pro- the regulatory process. Basically of or appellation of origin or whatever. Like, you know, there's push, good booze. Well, yeah, but yeah. they're measuring the levels, right? Of like the ABV, how much methanol is in it, making sure it's safe
1: and good and Exactly. Supposedly.
0: Um so what's the first stuff that comes out of the still for Mescal when they're when they're it entirely distilling?
1: depends on who's making it. So sometimes the producer will pull a couple liters or three or five liters off the front and ditch it. This I'm going to use to clean things. I'm going to use this for like kind of quasi-industrial purposes.
0: Is it methanol? But it's not methanol. It's something else. Alcohol.
1: There is some methanol content running throughout the entire right. thing. Okay. Uh, but it, there are there are some amounts of higher alcohols. There's methanol is not the only one that we're really worried about. Um, I'm not sure which specific one's common in beverage alcohols, is isoamyl alcohol, a bunch of other stuff like that. Acetone pops off pretty early. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these sorts of things come off in the very, very Paint very stripper,
0: fun. you guys. Paint <laughs> stripper.
1: Fun facts about mezcal. Uh, the only spirit category in the world where if you smell acetone on the nose, it's not necessarily a fault. That's right. The only spirit in the world that if it is waxy texturally, it's not necessarily a fault. Yeah. Like, really there's good. all I these like those. super exceptions to every rule in right. the spirit book in right. this category.
0: Right. Um, okay. So the next thing that comes out.
1: Next thing would be uh, like a, a higher proof, um, like they call it puntas, but it's it's a it's a run that generally gets cut off at like 50, 60, 70% alcohol by volume. Um, super potent, really ethereal. Uh, that's a good word, but it's a, a weird one. Uh, super like light and and, and uh, vibrant and light in texture and body. But, but you, high, high in ABV, some? right? High in ABV. What's yeah. that? Have you have some? Never. This week? <laughs> yes. Um That's why like you wrote the book, it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's on this week. <laughs> uh, There's some
2: sixty-three maybe. Around. I had some 70 stuff earlier yeah. this week. Uh
1: it's delicious, but it's cool because you you have like any of the heavier stuff, uh waxiness, oiliness, acidity, all sugar, all that stuff is pretty much not there at all. Uh so you have this thing that generally uh, the producer will take and set aside. And then we'll continue as liquid comes off the still to capture. Some people will then take like a heart's cut. Uh, Some people will go straight into colas, which is uh, the tails. These terms in spirits are scary. In whiskey, we take the heart of the distillation only. And that's how you can take such a broad swath of distillation. At different
0: different times, right? And this is all up to the mezcalero, mezcalera, the person who is making these choices. But it's
2: also a a big part of what the end result is going to be. They do a lot of adjustments with...
1: And putas. I am I, I'm gonna call my buddy Chava out on this for being pro cutting with water, uh, because I think that's that's lame. Uh I am absolutely for adjustment with the colas cut. Mm-hmm. So colas cut will generally be about like 20, 30 percent. And that alcohol, comes off
0: th- at the end, like towards, towards the, the end, end, not the very end. And then yeah. at the
1: very, very end, you basically have um the en- the English term for it's vinace, not a super sexy word, uh vinazas in uh in Spanish. Uh, and that's stuff that then, again, doesn't get used. So right. you got something you're throwing away. Because at the, at the end. end,
0: that's your heavy methanol, right? Like, that's the stuff. That's where so you get end. into
1: methanol okay. and really low alcohol content, a bunch of water coming off, stuff but that you just don't and want. This acid. And Vinacid, like super, like tart yeah. too. Like, weird. Like, if you ever taste the acid, it's gnarly. Uh, so, you, net, net, you got a little bit of something you're throwing off at the front, a little bit of something you're throwing off at the end. And then you've got these constituent parts in the middle. And you're trying to then, as a palanquero, bring these things together to make what you want. So you take some of the super low ABV stuff that's still bringing alcohol to the table uh, and you're adding it to some of the higher ABV stuff. Uh, and in doing so, you're adding body, uh, acidity, uh, and richness. Volume. And, volume. and volume and alcohol by volume. Yep. Uh, but then that's that's the final like artful step in what makes this whole thing come together.
2: One, one, of, like, one of the questions that we have, have often with, with other people is like, you see a bottle that is 38. You see a bottle that is 40 but then you see the jumps to like the 50s and 55s. Uh, taste is different, value of quality, shouldn't be discriminating by alcohol content either. Like you, if you like something that is a low ABV, it should be absolutely fine. It's, it's, it's a personal choice, but when we're talking about this more small, refined uh, lotes or uh, small batches. Yeah. You usually see them on the higher part. Is it because they don't do much adjustment? Do you know?
1: It, Have you seen? It's a stylistic choice on a, on a behalf of the producer, or sometimes in a, in a less warm and fuzzy way on behalf of the people who put the brand together. Okay. You know, there are interventionist brands out there. All of most brands are, in some capacity, interventionist with the practices of the producers. Uh, for those at home playing along, the, the people who run the brand or own the brand. Generally, aren't the people who are actually making the stuff that's that's not super common? The it's, majority there are very of the time, few brands there, there are producer-owned own own brands. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked
0: about some on the show, um, but the majority they're two different entities.
1: Exactly. So it, it, the authorship lies somewhere in between. That we'll put it towards the palanquero. Uh It's real hard to get down to forty without using water. Yeah. And you know that's okay. It's cool. Uh, I like stuff to be higher octane. If you show me some really charming 40 ABV stuff, I'm not going to be a super snob about it. If it's good, it's good. I'll drink it. But
0: what about for cocktails?
1: Uh, that's where you get in stuff. That's generally going to be cut with probably some of the, the, the Colas and probably some water. water yeah. And you're doing that for economy reasons and, and for volume reasons and all of the above and for cocktails. Yeah, that's totally acceptable. 40, 42 stuff comes in around there and that's what we generally use. You know,
2: we have been talking about, you know, appreciation and entry level and, get in love with this with this spirit, but there's not that many plants. So having something caught by water and using a cocktail to be the your introductory semi kind of close taste of something that you might get in love with and then invest the time and, and effort and money because it might be it gets costly into buy into like the more refined single expressions. Single expressions is not a bad entry way.
1: Sure. There's no wrong way into this. Yes. I have I have at some point in my life ripped a shot of mezcal and it may have been this week, um, but it's, I think, I, I'm I th- de- I'm dead serious. This is not like you guys. Is, I think my face, a, my think, jaw I dropped think to the there's ground. There's a video. There probably <laughs> I, a, think. I think a video exists of that from this week. It, but you know, yeah, it's it's, it's any access point, point. Uh, and especially when you're drinking stuff that's that's cut a little lower, that's a little bit broader of a swath, something that might end up in a cocktail. Uh, drink it how you like it.
0: You guys are making this really easy because you're sort of naturally going in and out of like the topics <laughs> is, that I want to touch on. Is this on. where I
1: write in the book about ripping shots? Is no. That I'm, <laughs> I'm sort of, I'm ignoring that right now. <laughs> you see how I, cool. <laughs> um,
0: so back to when I was talking originally about how it's really great how you structured the book, I'm actually going to, I'm hopping into the front of the book real fast, the cool. beginning, and then we're going to fast forward to my favorite part of the book, which
2: is towards the end. Jay, will you mind? Because if I say it, I might get in trouble. What is Sabrina holding her left hand?
1: What what is, what is Sabrina she holding, holding her left... on her left? hand. In, in, in her left hand would be would be a copy of the book.
2: How how is it structured? Do you see any particular things that the, might be amazingly uh, descriptive?
1: The book has a large number of post-it notes <laughs> protruding Come from on, the top. You guys. Single color. They're throwing
2: me under the bus. Here. They're single color. <laughs>
1: they appear to be single color, but they appear to be meticulously labeled. Um, have, you, have
2: you noticed that they're the small
1: kind? they are the small all type right. i like that i see some highlighting and some underlying all right listen i there. have
0: so many notes like this book is just filled with like my when
2: writing. i read it last week <laughs> it was empty it was clear <laughs> easy read nothing to like. oh there's highlight i should remember no it was it was clear
0: so i'd like to read a portion of the beginning <laughs> of the book okay please do and this leads to towards the end of the book um Where we talk about the economics of production. Okay. Yeah. Most consumers of mezcal are extremely removed from the actual economics of production. We are often forced to rely on second or third-hand information about the current market and environmental conditions. This is a highly advantageous situation for those creating the pricing. And it also incentivizes the perpetuation of certain myths and stereotypes surrounding agaves and their cultivation. Bam.
1: Shots fired. You
2: wrote that in your book you're like like that
1: tell i don't me tell fast. me i don't want okay like let's just jump <laughs> off the rails I, I, no, you guys
0: not only did i highlight it i underlined it and i made an asterisk by she it.
2: she read it multiple hand. times to me i did to make sure that i understand what she was saying and i say i didn't so i have to I, i'm gonna put all my Gabrielle. Right now in your explanation in this
1: okay i feel yeah. like Given my, let's just call, I'll even, I'll even qualify. Let's call my cursory knowledge of the business side of this. Cause I don't, I don't work for brand. I've never worked for brand. I don't take checks from them. Um, though I am willing to accept checks. Bring it. I'm trying to get paid over here. No. Um, I do this cause I love it. Uh, I care about it. Um, and I don't really actively want to do anything on a brand side because that gives me the position to try to place my morality into this thing. Right. Um, from some of my understanding, and from some of my understanding on the producer side of what the producers actually get paid, especially towards the higher end of the price spectrum of agave spirits available for sale in the United States, it seems to me that very possibly a large majority of the pricing structure might be pretty arbitrary. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't put the period on the end of that sentence, but it, it, it's – you see – I, to to at least my estimation and running a brand's expensive and there's all sorts of factors that have to go into it to, to make it come out the way it is and I'm not calling anybody in specific out but when you look at like American whiskey as a category uh, or even like other luxury spirits like scotch and cognac and stuff to, to some extent in all of them uh, the economics of production and all the costs that go into it determine what it, what it costs but there's also some amount of parity so it's like okay these guys are charging this much for their tobala And so we could probably price ours around this.
2: But, you know, there's a factor that is absolutely fascinating. And nonetheless, you you wrote a book out of it. This is not a common, normal, simple liquid. Nope. It comes from a very complicated story. It comes from a very interesting plant that has multiple ways of growing. But taking a really long time to mature. And taking a long time. is not all of them can be farmed. So when you talk about a whiskey, when you talk about a rum, when you talk about all these other liquors that is farmable under ethical practices, and there's like, there's a whole structure that has been procured by the industry for many, many, many years. You're talking about a, a, a history of a liquid that was done by the towns for the special events Never for the masses. And then it became this amazing liquid discovery. Like right. sure. But nonetheless, it was never structured to be industrial. Ever. Yeah. So finding this part. Right. Of and like, now it's global. And now it's global. Mm-hmm. And not just global. Now it's is being looked forward to like you know, the I have a bottle from 2010 from Sandra from In situ that she sent it over and I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna open it. Yeah because I understand what is happening now that I might never see it again.
0: Right. And I mean, there's so many socioeconomic factors that are going on. And I think you do a really nice job of explaining from a Western perspective of capitalism.
1: Put your W's up. Yeah. What's Western go- capitalism, What's going on
0: that. here? To me, I can relate to that really well because I was also born and raised here. Yeah. To Gabriel, he talked a little bit more about the communal aspect of how like Oaxaca functions, you know. Um, or just Mexico as a country. It's, or it's, just, a, it's, a, it's,
2: a, it's a different beast. It's experience. different.
0: Yeah. And, and it's very difficult. And we've found we've we've. Run into so many walls with trying to h- find a platform to talk about it, you know, because we're, we're far from experts. Yeah, Gabrielle was born and raised there, but he's been here for 15 years too. And like, you know, it gets really complicated when we're trying to talk. Like, we're always like, okay, guys, like, what can we do to help uh, preserve, you know, the beauty of this stuff? Let's not exploit it. <laughs> let's yeah. not just try not to exploit other people. Let's try to be respectful. No, let's all, let's enjoy it. We're all learning. We're all and learning. so. You know, the fact that you you bring it up pretty much gung-ho. <laughs> like I really respect that and I appreciate it because I think that it can actually help to, you know, continue these conversations that have to keep happening because there's no solution. This is the thing, like, I, as far as I can see. Yeah. You know, like, we're in it. Like, there are the big, the big beasts are involved. Like, the big corporations are involved. The tiny little guys, the, the producer makers are here. It's like everything's in the same pot, you Will know? We always
2: turn around in this exam point of, you are responsible for your ethical choices but yeah. how do you and, know what is right research, how do y- your research right and, and you know that's having you here but who's giving you right. the facts
0: like if there's all these a book like this, well, we have
2: this <laughs> yes yes and, that all and, comes and, from and, talking and, to and, people and, and, and yeah. some some facts because yeah. there's plenty yeah. more stuff well to, for to example
0: research. i'm holding up the book again with yeah. all of my little sticky post- notes and things the pie chart yeah you did a beautiful little pie chart that kind of helps. And David Ciro has talked about this a lot about like you know how much are you paying for your bottles at bars versus what how much money is going back to the palenqueros. Yeah, let's let's and, talk about yeah. that. That is anyway. This pie chart um, basically breaks down you know the the money and where it goes to. How much is used to buy the agave? How much is used for the producer? Taxes is huge. That's forty three percent in bottle storage, label, et cetera um and it really it's helpful to see this because it's the truth you know
2: and you're not adding all the costs or certification
0: well you well, he does get well but
2: that. the thing the yeah. certification of the Palenque, the certification. yeah that's of yeah. That's, locked, that's that's the initial certification investment. of like yeah. that yeah. money is huge for yeah. somebody that lives yeah. on kind of poverty line absolutely
1: Credit where credit is due on a pie chart. The the mathematics and numbers behind this are a hundred percent from Ulysses Torrentera, who is an incredible human being. <laughs> yeah. and I want to give him a major shout out for just for being awesome. That
2: video that he put together, also yeah. right? exactly. Okay, so it, it's coming. It's coming that.
1: from there because I'll right. tell you, I'm real far removed from this, right? right. So no, sources, And they're they're that's the source. Like
2: they're close as close. And just and
0: to, to it. make it real clear for those of you that haven't read the book yet, I can just say this little line. Um, so it's got the pie chart, but you actually break it down real simple, and you say to make this a little less abstract when you pick up a $50 bottle of mezcal made from agave espadine, somewhere around four of those dollars go to the family making. Four,
1: it. yeah. And to bring it back on what you said about pricing and the super spicy thing that I said about pricing being kind of arbitrary. It, if, so you look at espadine and let's say, for example, espadine might cost around $4 a liter wholesale because it kind of does, 4 or $5. Um, and then you look at other agave types and let's slide that bar up to like 12 to 15 dollars wholesale yeah. for other agave varietals coming out of Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's
0: just for one agave. That's right? just
1: for, yeah. But yeah. like when, so you're saying you're then paying 12, 15 dollars for a liter. You're then scaling up the price on that thing so drastically much more. And to make it less um, angering to all of my friends who work in brands and stuff when I'm over here saying pricing is arbitrary, the one thing about it that is a functional element of having higher prices on on stuff that's lower production is simply supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Like if you price an expression of Tobolata, $110 bottle, you're just going to sell less of it, less of it's being produced. That is the thing that's pushing it up more so than some sort of radical stroke of equity for the folks involved in it. No matter how good of an organization you're looking at, the pricing ceiling is coming from effectively supply and demand.
2: And a certain amount of how much you pay per hour of work in another country.
1: The, the the socioeconomic difference the it's, the the cost of living thing is is big but outside of that also the whole thing that it dives into about uh, cultural economic perspective yep. and community and you being responsible for other people in your community that's huge too that is that is it because I don't want to make more money because I make more money you're gonna come and tell me I need to pitch it into somebody else like, you might think I'm making more money than I am and ask me to pitch in more money yes. than I've actually come and up that's on huge, you know? right. that's a huge that's a huge dilemma and in all the
0: brands I think it's you know it's dangerous because when you say, "Well, shit, if I'm buying a bottle of mezcal only 4 dollars is going to the people that really deserve to have the majority so of the money." Well, then I shouldn't buy expensive mezcal, and that's that's counterintuitive.
1: It's counterintuitive. And what if here's here's the craziest question. What if they only want to make 4 dollars a liter? What if that's mm. that's that's the thing that keeps their community at Probably. that subsistence level if you're happy with that? I'm not going to come in and tell someone who's very happily possibly and i'm not i'm projecting here we're creating a scenario if someone's very happily living a subsistence mindset and they don't want to make more money because their neighbor's going to come and knock in and tell them they got to build a building for the school now I can't, as an outsider, come in and tell them to change their their communal way of Absolutely. being yeah. to subscribe to me. So in, it, I call out in there. I'm like, sometimes maybe the most radical thing for a brand to be doing is to simply be doing business with the producers. on their, ter-. Even if it's just on the producer's terms and even if the producer's terms mm-hmm. aren't necessarily enriching them, like that still provides a valuable source of jobs and income yeah. in these yeah, communities. And so just, here's- just when it gets abusive. Yeah. I'll say, though because i'm sounding kind of like a monster out of this because i'm t- saying stuff far removed from it and i'm saying maybe don't pay people more if i were someone who owned a brand and i worked with a small producer in a rural community i would try any step of the way that i could to try to put more money in the hands of my producers either directly or indirectly or whatever i, I think that there is very much a moral obligation on that side as long as it doesn't break down long-standing community yeah. more
2: recently recently we haven't we were having this beautiful conversation with friends of ours uh, that live over there and i was like we're trying to figure out something we want to we want to help we're far 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 removed thousands of miles away we're in new york during oaxaca what do you think will help and should like first pay for a price that's that that was the first thing that came out and the second one is the community like you don't need to help the Mescalero, you don't need to help the Balenquero you can help all around it. And by that society being taken care in a certain way or form, everything... She said, like, you have no idea, Gabriel, how intertwined these families are. Like everybody's friends of, of cousin or uncle or daughter from somebody that is, is, is all in the same semi-microclimate nucleus, however you want to call it. Like, you want to help? Help around, don't, don't help. Like, they're, they're already working. They're making some money. They're already there's a there's a there's an industry that is blooming. So they're good. Everybody else around. Like that's why you need to support and i was like that makes sense. You know? So that's another point somewhere out there. Uh, not for Mezcal, but for if you have the bug like we do that we wanna help around this is is not the is not necessarily the Palenque, it's the community.
1: Create jobs, Yeah. Mm-hmm. create jobs, create middle-class jobs, create, you're going to have an accountant for your, have that person be from as close to the right. community do that do as, as possible. Do as much as like, you
0: can in-house in the area. Like a lot of people talk about bottling, right? Like there's no reason why bottling can't happen.
2: Or buying the bottles from China.
1: Yeah. Yeah, actual Kimmelho's, glass, like where the glass, the glass. is coming from is a big yeah. thing. They yeah. got a bottle in Mexico, but, you know, sometimes they're shipping it out to more industrial producing regions or, yeah. you know, somewhere else where they can do it yeah. on a larger scale. Yeah, you're bottling in a community, even if you're doing it by hand. That's people getting paid for doing work. Yeah, yeah. so
0: that's interesting stuff to look out for, you guys. Like, you know, um, if if a website does say, oh, hey, we bottle here and this is how it looks. And, you if somebody's know...
2: doing good things, they're usually pretty good to show it. Yeah, people like <laughs> to share yeah. the it's good stuff and that they're yeah. doing. Yeah. They show it pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. If
0: people don't share much information, then there's – questions right questions remain that's all i'm gonna say i'm not gonna say oh they're doing nefarious things there's just questions sure that's all you know um and okay so i mean we could go round and round and round for this um but the crm and the do um the crm is the regulating council that makes the decisions for what is going to be deemed mezcal the the term mezcal and the um producing regions that are allotted and allowed um you make a pretty good point at towards the end of the book to basically say, w- what can we do to make it not go the way of tequila? And for those of you that are interested to really go in deep, I do recommend Sarah Bowen's Divided Spirits book for sure. Um, it's a wonderful, very in-depth look at the um, the Do regulation for tequila. And she also goes into mezcal too in the book. Um, but that was written, I think in like 2015, 2014. Lots have changed. So, so lots changed since then.
1: Specifically with 2014, and 2019, right? As I know. Uh, the, uh, in a scholarly article I just recently read, which I will share with you guys and possibly our listeners, um, a really Super excellent scholarly article. Thank you again He's Chava. He's doing a hand clap, uh, you guys. I'm just to doing let you the know. clap emoji <laughs> wait, wait. in real life. You keep on
2: saying his name Chava.
1: Chava. Chava. I mean, Chava. Chava is. Uh... He's uh, one of the the people who's working on a, a little project with us with Heritage Radio. We've done a an Agave Spirits mini series thing for them as a spinoff. Me, Lou, and Chava. Uh, is as this a, the
2: event that is happening with Lou and Heritage Radio?
1: We're doing the event, um, it, which will probably be in the past tense. I would assume yeah. when this comes out. Uh, but that that's related to it, okay. and we are uh, we have recorded a podcast as a travelogue through Mexico, awesome. uh, the three of us, and uh, we're going to be releasing it as a spinoff series. On heritage of uh awesome. speakeasy.
0: You guys um check out if you don't know it, check out Heritage Radio. They are a community-based um radio organization based in Bushwick, Bushwick. and they're they're awesome. Their programs are super, super good. Yeah. yeah. Shout but out.
1: The uh the defeat of the, the point of this article is basically, and it does it, it at beautiful, painstaking length, that the CRM and and the state of being of the category of certified mezcal. Uh, is imperiled in some capacity, right? This could get bad. This could mean the qualitative drop off of Mezcal's category, right? Certified Mezcal. Uh, The point that it makes more elegantly than I'm gonna be able to do is effectively that the defeat of, I believe it was NOM 186, is that in 2014? And then the subsequent defeat of NOM 199 (laughs) or modification of NOM 199 in 2018 represent the ability, full stop, real important dramatic pause here, of people like you and me uh to have a direct impact on what ends up happening with regulation of this beer category and it constantly dances between like this doom and gloom sort of uh scenario and 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 kind of bent and it constantly keeps fluxing back and the takeaway ends up being like hey we and the internet generally speaking you know producers on the ground in mexico and and people like us in the States got real fired up about this and shut this stuff down when it tried to happen because we felt strongly about it. And we had a real legislative impact on this category. And that is the true promise of the future. And that made me feel real good. I was like, man, how was it organized? The, the resistance to one eight, six and one nine nine, um, internet. Uh, I, I remember the the
2: underground in in Mexico, the, you know,
1: uh not in specific it does do, put out some details of it uh okay. in in this article uh, and i feel real bad that i can't call out the author cuz it's just so brilliant
0: that's okay um, we'll, we'll we'll get it from you later and we'll put it up
1: okay perfect yeah. uh but yeah basically um I remember when the petition was going around. I think uh, David Surrow was involved in, in, uh, in the shutdown process on 186 uh, Tequila Interchange, I believe. Uh, I don't know if Nominally was involved, but that's his effort. Uh, and yeah, the petition circulating online, I remember that popping off. Uh, I immediately jumped on that. I sent it to all my friends, had them jump on it. And us being loudmouths on the internet and producers on the ground going to community meetings and saying, we don't want this to happen, basically prevented the mm-hmm. word agave from being Were the, brand, were the being brands stolen.
0: involved too in, in helping? Some. Okay.
1: And some less so. I can't remember what who specifically was on what side, but I know that there More were definitely would I some ever brands. ask
0: you to say that. But. Maybe
1: even some brands, and, and I don't recall clearly who was and wasn't, probably some brands I even feel pretty warm and fuzzy about uh, to date Uh, were involved in actively trying to push this through and what both of these pieces of regulation would have done is shut down the ability to use the word agave for anybody else who's Mm -hmm. not certifying anywhere in mexico
0: okay and so this is really crucial because we are able to buy juice up here that say agave distillate right instead of like if they don't come from the producing regions for the dom for for the nom for mezcal then or they
2: don't Simply they don't or they certify. choose or, right they choose or they not choose to not
0: to certify. You can get spirits up here that are agave distillates or agave spirits,
2: and with that is a catch twenty two. You have to be, if you're buying something that is a, an agave spirit or agave distillate, just do a little more research because there's right there's, because there's there, there a is something
0: more. to be said about the denomination of origin is there to protect, you know, and at its clearest and purest, it's there to protect everybody, the consumer, the producers the um, ecological impact on the plants themselves um, in in its best, you know. Um, right. And so when you're getting stuff that isn't certified, it's got none of that behind it. it's still being able. <laughs> For our listeners, um, just as it stands now, you Is also any- have a nice, in the a nice little <laughs> chart at the end of the book that describes the categories um, mezcal, mezcal artisanal, and mezcal ancestral. Um, so it's, it's nice to see what the parameters are for those so that when they're very broad, they're some of them are more broader than others.
1: <laughs> the DO, by it's the way, when you confusing. read through this in the DO is not a page turner. Okay. It's not 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 a not a thriller <laughs> not, of no. a read. So yeah, I try to make it a little more like bracketed yeah,
0: out. Yeah, yeah. And that that's it's really it's quite helpful. But then on, on top of this, you have the expressions that are out there that are that are um, you know, agave distillate or agave spirit as well. And not to say that any of that is bad or wrong. It's just, you know, there's different ways to figure out um where it comes from and what it is
1: sure
2: the scariest part of all this when when you start reading and seeing that like the full sphere is is where are they getting the agave from and how is this agave being protected if being taken from uh Silvestre from uh wild agave that's that's when I, the more i read the more i hear the more we research it like that's the one point that keep on sticking and it like from all this denomination of origin from all this classification of what it is to do mezcal in certain ways like the the, the protection to the actual plant and there's there's this said in Mexico and I think it's now very well known sin agave no hay mezcal
1: mm.
2: I hear you. no agave no mezcal right and I I don't hear much of that being said or talk or discuss so I think that is that is one of the points that I think is from all these denominators of origin, should be a little bit more stress.
1: Sure. Yeah. Really, really oddly, uh, my brother, uh, he's the smart one. He has his uh Ph.D. in forestry science. Shout outs to Todd Schrader, um, and he has done at least cursory work in the past with, uh, I think not the CRT, but specific tequila producers, uh, using satellite imagery about. Uh, trying to figure out land and resource management. I mean, it was pretty wild. It was yeah. a small world. I guess we both ended up working with agave. That's spirits wild. In some really ra- yeah. Way. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, That's yeah. That's so
0: cool. I mean, there are brands that yeah. definitely do highlight their reforestation efforts and also replanting, semi-cultivated, cultivated, you know. And learning
2: about it because, again, this new.
0: Seed harvesting. Like agave, you know.
2: agave farming other than blue weber in, in, in uh and 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 it can for for mm-hmm. other kind of uses that they were something that had been farmed from decades and decades, like all these new delicious agaves that turn into mezcal, there's there's no science yet. It's,
1: it's all very it's formative. New. Yeah, but the knowledge base of of growing these things is, is spreading out, and uh, you know people are they see the dollar signs, or at the very least they see the the work and the income that that can bring. So people are getting plants in the ground all over Mexico
2: there's there's you know there's conversations about this for hours and hours if we want to go just that route but one of the things that we listened uh recently was also like there's a lot of species that they're in danger there's a lot of species that because they're being over for other kind of mezcalis or other Non, sure. I mean, Tess was
0: their- over here talking about like um more yeah. wild agaves being poached for tequila, <laughs> yeah.
1: right? I've definitely heard very specific stories about that. Yeah, from a number of different non-tequila producing and non-CRT yeah. covered states in yeah. Mexico, several yeah. different ones. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all that is taken into account to when you're doing your research, when you're looking around, when you buy a bottle, just. Put attention on the internet is usually halfway (laughs) truth. I said this earlier today. I was like,
1: I was asked like, oh, you know, how do I know what to do? Or if I'm in the liquor store, what do I, what do I do? I'm like, well, you, you know, slide into my DMs and I'll probably answer you back and be like, just be careful what you say, Jay. (laughs) Bring it. I don't know. I'm on the internet all the time, people. I don't care. Yeah, but I
0: mean, you know, like the basics. Like, what would you say is our responsibility as consumers?
1: Oh Christ, all of the stuff we've talked about. Um yeah. Um, but let's
0: kind of bullet point for people because maybe they got bored and they fast forwarded or
1: something. Okay, cool. Not that anyone would ever <laughs> no, do that. Nobody would ever do uh, that. So like in terms of like what to pick or what to look for, Yeah. does it have a person's name on the bottle who created it? That's a good start. Does it have the name not of a state but of a town on it? That's a real good start. So a little you could do this thing of like Add points. If this, if it's over six points, then you're allowed to buy it. Right. Like, you know, it, it gives you additional points. If it's a little higher ABV, that's generally a pretty good sign. Um, yeah, like just, just trying to look at people who run like Vanguard Agave Spirits programs in the United States, you look at what they do and you look at what they have on their menu. That's probably a really good place to start. I so would start there.
0: what about for the consumers that, you know, are a little bit strapped for cash, right? They want to get a price point under 50, maybe mm-hmm. even under 45, 40. Um, can I ask you what you guys use at the bar for cocktails?
1: Sure. We use a couple of different things. We use uh, Bonas, uh, which I feel really good about. Uh, they're their ensemble. A co-op on, the, on the back end. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's
0: there. It's an Espedean Barrel. From um Ahutla. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I think I think Ahutla, I think they I think they have a couple of producers over a in, a in Sola. <laughs> uh, but like broadly and it's a really smart way that they've scaled up what they do. We use a decent amount of banas. Uh, we use uh right now uh Siete Misterios mm-hmm. Uh we also um, have been working with Maelen Machetazo, which is real cool because it lets us work with a different region, different type of agave. Uh, not a lot of information on, on that producer, really, really sadly, because uh, Guerrero is not necessarily the safest of places uh, in the world. And because yeah. of that, um, it's there's kind of a bit of a firewall of information about that product. But all the more reason I feel conviction to try to work with something from there.
2: Eric mm-hmm. Eric from um, Alma Mescalera has something from Guerrero that is absolutely delicious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: It's just tough to travel down there, and and yeah, it's sad. You then see the intersection of like the circumstance uh, in the greater community impacting mm-hmm. these people who just want to make an honest living. Uh, and because you leadership. have
0: access to the distributor that knows a little bit more, that's why I'm asking you for you know what what you guys use. I hope you don't mind. Sure, no,
1: not at all. And it's it's an always evolving thing. I'm always I'll tell you if you don't if you have something to hide, don't bring me to your facilities or to your palenques because I will always find I a convenient it. time to wander away. And I will probably end up in your laboratory and no one else is around and I'm taking pictures of things. Or I'm taking pictures of the stuff you have stacked outside the building and so and I'm always doing research to try to see what's going on here. And I just want to know. And I haven't really ever found anything super crazy in those sorts of things. I'm always sniffing around trying to get a bead on what your operation is and and, and how it works.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you guys, did we miss anything?
1: I think we're good. We, yeah, we covered an awful lot of work. We, we can I mean, go, we can I, go for another hour. I know, another, an hour, I know, another, I
0: know but I think, I think this is, this is perfect. Um, we, we spent a good long time talking about all this good stuff, but there's still so much more to, to learn and to read. So, you guys, I really implore you to pick up your book of understanding Nascal by James Schrader. James, that's, that's what my mom calls. My mom
1: calls me that when I'm in trouble. James, where can they find it? Amazon.com. Uh, what
2: if they're again anti Amazon? If
1: you're anti Amazon, slide into my DMs, hit me on the Venmo, and I'll ship you a copy. That's how we oh. got ours. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Ask as for design copy, please.
1: It's a, uh, uh, it's a uh, yeah, and, and that can easily be added, and it's cool because you know Amazon. I chose that specifically because it's such a big reach. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it costs me a gang of money, and it you know is is kind of a cumbersome thing. Venmo venmo you can always hit me mm-hmm. on the venmo slide in the DMs.
0: and what is your instagram handle how can people find you
1: uh you can find me i'm uh at james e schrader schrader spelled like schroeder uh and uh you'll know it's me because it's a picture of me standing next to the world's most beautiful trumpo of tacos autobase that has ever existed and i was so geeked <laughs> i was grinning ear to ear because i got to try real deal tacos autobase in pueblo for the first time did like, you hug them? I didn't because I think they would have kicked me out. They would not have taken kindly to it that. It happened
2: a few times. Don't worry about
1: it. It <laughs> was, oh, that's a gorgeous drum ball. Those were so good.
0: And they can come visit you uh, at the bar if they go to Chicago. If so you, come you come to Chicago, go.
1: please uh, come through. Come see us. Todo we Santos. the and friendly Quixote. staff in the game. Todos Santos and Quixote. Las Aves Nocturnas. Yes. Shout
0: out. <laughs> All right, Jay. Thank you so much for being here with us. Saludita. Salud.
1: Salud.
0: Is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabriel Velasquez Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lazard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at MilagroVerdeBK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Saludcita.